Hey, I'm Dr. Jeremy Perigo. This is the Worship Theology Podcast, a space where we're intentionally integrating theological reflection and ministry and worship practice. Today, I'm yeah delighted to have a friend and colleague, somebody I've yeah known over the last few years um, through conferences and other events, Dr. Shannon Baker. She's a postdoc fellow in church music and digital humanities at Baylor University, and um, a part of one of the, yeah one of the founding members of the Worship Leader Research Team. Um, and she's yeah particularly her dissertation was studying worship songs from 2010 to 2020, but is also a, a worship practitioner leader. Um, and a great thinker in all things worship and contemporary song. So welcome, Shannon. Great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, one of the things we ask, yeah, all of our guests, um, yeah, particularly those that are practicing Christians that are a part of this worship thing um, that we're trying to understand more is to maybe share about a moving or meaningful experience in Christian worship for you. And that could, you know, when I ask that question, what, what are a couple of those stories or one of those moments that just come right to your mind? Yeah, well, thinking about this and preparing for the podcast in particular, it, it brought to mind one recent moment within the past uh, year and a half or so. I had just finished my dissertation, had Woo. just finished <laughs> writing it, and uh, the way my schedule worked out, I turned it in and then went straight to help lead and play for a women's retreat at oh, wow. church. Um, and it was a really, I'm glad that I had that on my schedule because in that, in that worship service, um, just being able to worship and praise God for bringing me through the dissertation process was just truly impactful. There was a moment, uh, during one of the songs, uh, and this hasn't happened to me many times, but I was, um, you know, playing guitar and we were, everyone was singing. Um, and you know, I felt driven and and called to just get on my knees Hmm. and I'm on the stage and our church has built a practice where it's very normal for people to, to kneel on stage, but I, I hadn't done it at Hmm. this particular church, um, but felt really called to do that and just felt this overwhelming peace as I, as I was on my knees, thanking God and just praising him for, for bringing me through the dissertation process um, just felt an immense, immense peace and um, was kind of overwhelmed by by the goodness and presence of God. So that was the the moment that came to mind uh, that stuck with me. Oh, that's so beautiful. Like what mm-hmm. what led to this? You know, you've yeah, you mentioned you're leading worship, playing guitar. But what led to you particularly studying and researching contemporary worship? Like, uh, yeah, uh, tell, maybe a, in a window into kind of what 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 drew you to this topic and to this area of study. Yeah, I feel like most young worship leaders don't necessarily, you know, have that set as their mind, you know, their end goal for where they want to go. And it wasn't mine. Um, But in my undergrad, I was feeling called um, to go back at some point and and teach at the collegiate level and to teach worship and to teach, um, yeah, theology and practice of, of contemporary worship, specifically with a band. And I had a professor who thought, kind of told me what I probably should have known, but it was, you're going to have to get your doctorate in order to do that. And I kind of accepted that and kind of went through the process, um, went through seminary and got into a PhD program. But with a PhD program, you have to choose something to research. And even in seminary, you know, you have projects and different 
areas. So kind of got, you know, my toes wet a little bit in seminary, um, kind of focusing on this. But what drew me specifically to researching this area was it's it's what I do, mm. right? I, I practice contemporary worship. Um, the churches that I attend primarily use a contemporary worship style. They're using bands. And so it was mostly a, a curiosity of, reading all of these great texts in seminary, especially about the history of, uh, you know, worship in the church and its development and all the different types of songs and just seeing this big gap of nobody having written anything or researched it and kind of looking at it in a sense of, well, this is worthy of being studied too. Mm -hmm. So if no one else is doing it, then I guess that's going to be what I do. And it was around that time finishing up seminary when Monique Ingalls came out with her book. And then as I moved into the PhD work, people were starting to release more publications on the topic. So now I just get to join them and um, grateful for all the other work that I've been able to build off of. Well, yeah, we're so glad for you and so many others kind of writing in this space, because like you said, it's been a huge gap. And what was written sometimes was just primarily a critique that it that contemporary worship wasn't Lutheran worship or Roman Catholic worship or Methodist yeah. worship or <laughs> or critiquing those within those communities who are embracing contemporary worship. And so, yeah, right. I really, really appreciate that you're helping right into this space along with, with so many others. Usually I, I bring questions from other friends or colleagues. Often they're kind of towards the end of the, the kind of episode, but one from uh, Liturgy Fellowship kind of ask a question around this idea of is it challenging for you to study a movement that you're also really active in? And yeah, is there anything challenging about that? And also, is there any upsides to that that you see as kind of your studying and even being critical about in, a, in, a, in an academic sense, like being thoughtful and analytical about what you're mm-hmm. seeing? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, what's challenging about that? But what also maybe are some upsides? Yeah, I would say the challenges. Um are definitely learning to think critically about worship, but also learning to not think critically about worship on the other side. So balancing the practitioner-scholar sides of what I do and learning to turn off the academic critical mind when I'm in worship and actually being able to focus and participate and not analyze, but at the same time being able to separate my emotions and experience out so I can think critically about, okay, well, why, you know, ask the questions about why did that work or how did that happen? Um, So I'd say that's, that's probably the biggest challenge. At the same time, I wouldn't trade my position for the world. I, I love that I get to study what I'm a part of. And I think that's the biggest upside is having a unique insight into the practice of contemporary worship and being having my, you know, finger on the pulse of what's what's happening, what's new, who are the leading artists that from the outside, I probably could do some research and keep up with it. But being able to see the way that people who use this music and listen to it regularly, of whom I am one, um, but getting to see that informs what I do and kind of brings um yeah, it makes it more personal and allows me to, yeah, have an insight in academic circles where um, we'll be talking about contemporary worship as we do at conferences. 
And because I'm in that world, I'm able to reference things that even in some of our conversations, I can tell were things that I thought were commonplace and everybody knew, but realizing that people don't know that. And so having the ability to voice some of those unique aspects of, of participating in that style. Yeah. That, yeah, that reminds me of a couple of conversations like when I was in London and with these amazing global scholars who I have so much respect and half their books are on my shelves. But when they, when they, when they shared comments about contemporary worship, it was maybe contemporary worship in the 1980s, the songs they talked about, the, Mm. the acts of worship they did. And so, and this was not, this is 2014, 2015. And I'm like, do you guys know this is developed over 20, 30, even 40 years? And there's, Mm-hmm. There are songs that are Trinitarian. There are songs that are <laughs> yes. songs of lament. There are there are songs of prayer and confession and um, yes, again. And mm-hmm. so, I, yeah, I think I think with yeah with someone like you, I can see that because you are you're aware of what's popular. You're working with students and even teaching them how to lead and play, and so you you know their songs mm-hmm. so so well too. Um, yeah, your dissertation focused a lot on the most sung songs in America for about a decade, 2010 to 2020. So fairly recent history. We've had Lester Ruth, you know, on this before and Adam Perez, who's done other decades of kind of history of contemporary mm-hmm. worship. But what are just some of your findings from from that study of, you know, 10 years of of the most sung Christian worship songs in America? Yeah, that's a big question. So, tell tell us about your dissertation, <laughs> Shannon. <laughs> so many things. Well, and I think you know my dissertation was divided really into three parts. So I'll just say some of the things that I found interesting, yeah. kind of from each part, kind of rapid fire. Um, so I studied uh, the lyrics of the songs, um, and some of the things that I just found interesting are um, that when you think about God's actions in the world, the two things that come to mind are creation and salvation. Yes, there are a lot of other things that God did, but those are like the two main things um, that God did. And of all the songs that I studied, 41% don't mention either of those things. Fascinating. Yeah. And so it's a significant portion of the songs that aren't focusing or discussing what God, the big things that God has done, you know, that shape and form our faith. So they're missing out in some sense in the big story, the meta narrative Mm -hmm. of creation, Mm -hmm. fall, redemption. And I doubt a lot of them talk about consummation or the, the, the (laughs) the hope to come, not, not, yeah, the hope to come. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Definitely a a big, big gap there. Mm. Um, but there, but I will say on the flip side of that, um, about half the songs, so almost half the songs, make some kind of reference to salvation. I made that very broad, yeah, but yeah. To, to offset that a little bit, there are a lot of songs that do talk at least about salvation. Um, in the music sections, a couple of the things that stood out were, um, and it was one thing that I just started studying because I found it interesting and it relates to practice, but the uh, choruses it is most common for the melody to start before the downbeat of a chord. Mm. So the melody is going to start before the chord progression happens. And one of the things I started thinking about with that was wondering, why might that be, right? And one of the best conclusions that I can come up with is in a lot of those settings, 
it's becoming less common for people to say, let's sing that chorus again. They just do it. So if you have a chorus where the melody starts singing before the chord happens, you don't have to cue that. The band hears the melody going and they know, go to the, you know, the chorus mm-hmm. chords. Um, so, so that these, was, these are like, of, like pickups then to the, mm-hmm. to the, to the one or to the, you know, for just for the, we yep. have listeners that are more theological, oh, more pastoral. That's yeah, no, that's like, good. What, could, do you have a, is one of those come to mind? Like an example of, is it like. Yeah, let me let me let me think. I'm just of an trying to think. Really I, I led last night. I was trying to think back through the choruses of "In the Darkness." Is that right? Like da da da. No, that would be the that would be the verse. Um, uh oh. Let me let me get one here. Um, I had them pulled up a, a second ago. But essentially, uh, in, in in maybe oh pre, 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 easy one yeah. Um, ten thousand reasons. Bless the Lord, yeah. oh my soul. Right. Bless the yeah. is happening before is those pickups so you, to the one or know. to where the chords play. Mm-hmm. And so maybe yep. years ago people would have would have yeah done a little ad lib or done a just a hey, let's do the chorus again. Sing Church, again. sing yeah. it again, Church. That was my uh-huh. <laughs> my upbringing. But now the 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 melody of those songs actually mm-hmm. actually a lot do of them. that. Yeah, or many mm-hmm. of them. What tell yep. uh, you you kind of said this, but why do you think that shifted? Um do you have any any thoughts on what? Yeah, I I think some of it, and I could be wrong on this. I have to check in with Gen Z, our younger generation. <laughs> but I think there's there's this hesitancy to take anything out of the moment. That if you're in the middle of a song, and you're worshiping with it, the way that a lot of people would cue that could be seen as, especially in this day in this day and age, I feel like it's become. Sed- in you know some satire or people are like let's sing the chorus again right and make it really comedic but people would do that i've done that where it's you know let's sing that chorus one more time but i feel like the younger generations might feel that is inauthentic mm-hmm. or just too planned too structured mm-hmm. as opposed to just someone starting to sing the chorus again mm-hmm. And we all just follow. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think some of it is is just the the practice of trying to remain in the moment, not doing anything that pulls you out of it, or or even like like triggers your mind to knowing that oh we're doing you know this right now in a group. It's not just me and God, which in yeah. some ways I might say <laughs> isn't necessarily it, yeah. a good thing. But um, but I think that's there's a hesitancy there. Mm. Well, that's fascinating. You said, you said, did you say there was three things? I think we got two. Did we get two of them or did we? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The third one was the industry. This one I'll, I'll reference a little bit to our worship leader research yeah. uh, website and all of the articles that we did there. But one of the things that I found, because my study was different than the worship leader research one in the sense that it took all of the songs that were most popular in the 2010s, not just those that were also written during that decade. So it's got Chris Tomlin's How Great Is Our God on there and other songs. Um, But of my 70 song corpus, I had 70 songs, 77% had some kind of connection to Capital CMG, which for those who aren't familiar, it's Capital Christian Music Group. It's, I don't know how many artists they have these days, so many artists 
that are signed to the Capitol record label and Capitol produces and releases their songs and distributes them. Um, Hillsong has a distribution deal with Capitol for uh, the United States. And so that's all, all their songs fall into that category because they have a relation and a connection to Capitol. So it's a significant portion of songs. I've, I've no, and tell me if this is right. I've, I've noticed cause you know, we'll, I've recorded covers of worship songs for now 30 years, a jazz version for something I've done or like right. a student project. And I've mm-hmm. noticed like just the amount of work to get a mechanical license to record that, meaning the, you know, the license so I can use someone else's songs where it used to be more love, more power, Pete Sanchez vineyard, you know, vineyard. And now mm-hmm. like uh, we just did a couple for yeah students that had like, six mm-hmm. six writers uh-huh. like seven or eight different publishing companies and then yep. and then usually capitals in there too somehow in mm-hmm. in publishing and distributing is that what i've experienced normal now i mean where it is like you'd have like 13 yes. 13 writers and 13 oh gosh, publishers yes. and then but then capital in some ways involved with almost or mm-hmm. at least 70 percent of of them. Yeah. Yes. Well, co-writing is, is the big, the big shift, right? And with that comes all of those extra things that you've talked about, but co-writing is the big shift. So the thing that I found in my research is that the songs that were written before 2000, so they appeared on my list, people are still singing them, but they were written before 2000 were all solo writers. They were all written by one person. Now, in the last, I think I sectioned it to the last three years. So like since 2017 through 2020 at the time, zero songs were written by one person. The average ends up being about four people. And what's interesting about those co-writes is it's this way of bringing what would be competition in the music industry, but in the contemporary worship world, it's a little different, but they work together. And so you have a Bethel songwriter writing with a passion person who's writing with a Hillsong person. And with all of that comes their own labels that they're signed to and their own publishers. And so yes, you end up with a copyright for any of you practitioners out there who see that huge copyright (laughs) at the bottom, that's like six lines long. That's wise, because you have all of these Um, people who are writing and are signed to a label, but some of them also have their own individual labels. So they have their own publishing so that they can make sure it's, it's a big money explanation. I'll, I'll spare you guys all the details, but it's, it's interesting. It's why like, yeah, in some bulletins that print all that, like you need a whole nother page or again, slides like super small. (laughs) Hey, I know this wasn't on our, our agenda to talk about, but do you think that song collaboration, that co-writing, are there are there some upsides to that that you've you've maybe seen, and also flip 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 that? Is there maybe some downsides or things that you've yeah observed either as with your scholarly hat on or or with your kind of worship leading hat on? Sure, I think the the one that comes to mind that I haven't really reconciled myself necessarily as a practitioner, but when you have certain artists that you choose not to use because you decide that your church's theology doesn't align with that church's theology. And so you're not going to sing those songs, which is fine. I know lots of people make those decisions. I made those decisions as a worship leader. Um, What gets tricky when you get into co-writing 
is all of a sudden some of the songwriters at that church that you've decided not to use their music um, are now co-writing with people that you will use the music by. Mm -hmm. And so you sometimes don't even realize the influence that's getting moved around. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that those songwriters aren't great at some of those churches that are more controversial. Um, But your theology informs your songwriting. And so it may be kept in check by the people that you do align with and that you do agree with. Um, But it gets really complicated about, well, so-and-so wrote on this song, but they're only one of five people. Should I not use that song? Because they're one of five people. So it's it's tricky in, in that regard. But I do think there's something to be said, though, to present, you know, a positive the other side. view yeah, of yeah, it. Yeah. Um, I, I will say it's kind of a beautiful thing. And people will say it's for money reasons or publicity or whatever. Um, but I think it's kind of beautiful when the church is able to set aside competition to say, let's do something together mm-hmm. instead of saying, nope, we don't do that. We do our thing here. We don't need to work with anyone else. What we've got's working. We don't we don't need anyone else. But to have them have enough humility to say, we've got what we've got here. And just because I'm gonna go, you know, write a song with these other people doesn't mean that what we have here is bad or good. It's just adding more songs and working with other people who are good at their craft. And I think in some ways that allows certain songs that again, maybe I wouldn't have found because I maybe don't use a song by that artist um, that are actually really good, but just under another artist with some different co-writers. So there are, there are benefits in some ways. I won't say who it is because this is public, but I've had a few friends that are very much in that and have received phone calls while other artists are in the studio saying, Hmm. Hey, I've added this tag to your song. Um, If, I'm happy to record it. I'm I'm kind of you if you whoever's listening can't see my face right now, but it's a bit of a cheeky face. Like I'm happy to record this and put it out on my new project if I could have 15% or 20% mm-hmm. because I'm going to add this other bridge. And so on one hand, yeah. some of those artists are super happy like we want their song and they're they're up for that collab, but also it can I know it also can feel like well, if if I get this person on there. And on the other hand, I think as you listen to some of those artists that you've you've mentioned, some of their strong songs have gotten stronger and maybe also mm. more broad appeal in the best sense. Like maybe from their yeah. very specific theological tradition, whether it was a very specific kind of prosperity gospel within po- Pentecostalism, but then as they've r- written with Matt Redman, who has the an- evangelical mm-hmm. Anglican, or as they've written with Chris Tomlin, yeah. who has some of the Baptist conne- you know mm-hmm. connections, like they're they're connecting with some of those um topics yeah. that are yeah more broadly global evangelical instead of just their own little niche niche mm-hmm. definitely um yeah maybe what what are some of the this kind of comes from one of our english professors we're we're reshifting this but as we're thinking about some of these topics around um yeah this decade of of 2010 to 2020 what are maybe some of the lyrical shifts in these songs that you've seen? Um, or what are, yeah, some of the theological themes you've said, you know, some of them aren't connecting on on this big creation and, and kind of salvation, but what's happening within this this corpus of, of songs that, that's 
lyrical? Does that make sense? Like what what shifts are are happening lyrical, or or are they sounding so much like the songs from twenty, thirty years ago, or a hundred years ago? Yeah, there's there's been a lot of changes in the 2010s. I think people are, you know, in some sense, you're you're all writing about the same topic. So especially songwriters who are creatives are trying to think of these, you know, new new ways to say the same thing. Yeah. Um, and I think some some of that language is reflected in the lyrics. I think in some ways, some of the things that aren't as prominent but did start to emerge is mentioning. Um, uh, like spiritual freedom. Um, so that comes up a lot, specifically describing uh, hardships as, you know, like chains being weighed down. Yeah. Um, one of the biggest shifts that I've seen, though, that I think has continued even into the 2020s is this aversion to the word sin. We, we don't like the word sin. I think there's a lot of, well, there is a lot of baggage that comes with sin, <laughs> but I think there's a lot of religious baggage that comes with the term sin. So I think some songwriters have been very hesitant to be so forward about it. And so there's been this shift where um, shame has come in or even um, bringing in you know, instead of talking about sin, we're going to talk about fear, Mm -hmm. you know, we're going to avoid sin. Um, you know, the one that comes to mind when I start even thinking about fear is no longer slaves. I'm no longer a slave to fear. Mm -hmm. I am a child of God. Well, you're also no longer a slave to sin. Can you say that too? And, you know, and maybe 30 years ago, that would have been it or a hundred years ago, Mm -hmm. it would have, that would have been the lyric. Like, yeah. Right. Yeah. But there's been this shift where, you know, I'm not talking about my sin. I'm talking about my shame, which in some ways, you know, is one of the effects of sin, right? We yeah. feel shame about our sin. So they're hinting at it, but there are very few songs that actually come out and name sin. Mm. That's fascinating. You, mm-hmm. another kind of topic in your dissertation along this kind of theology of song, you looked at Trinitarian, like nomenclature, the words around the Trinity, and some others have done that, Lester, you kind of go into those what yeah what did you find particularly about father son spirit this you know most churches in the world no matter their stream have that on their website like we believe in one god three persons yes. father son spirit is th- <laughs> is that showing up in the songs and if so how or kind of what 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 were you researching and kind of what were your findings around that yeah so i actually was using Trinitarian theology as a broad lens for Mm -hmm. analysis. So as you mentioned, lots of people have used Trinitarian theology to study um, contemporary worship songs. Lester Ruth is one of them. Mike Tapper, who's on Worship Leader Research, is another. Um, But what I kind of wanted to do was expand beyond a Trinity scavenger hunt. Mm -hmm. I wanted to use Trinitarian theology as a lens. So yes, I did look at names and some of the things that I found there are interesting, but I also looked at what Trinitarian theology focuses on of um, the imminent Trinity and the economic Trinity. Mm -hmm. So the imminent Trinity focusing on who God is, God's being, which is inseparable from the economic Trinity. So God's acts, what God does in the economy of salvation, in the economy of our world. So that's kind of names and addressing God, but then also looking at these two aspects of act and being. So 
for naming God, um, one of the things that I found, which I think reflected a lot of what other people um, have found kind of searching for the persons, you know, is Jesus named, is the Holy Spirit yeah. named, is the Father named. And so what I found was pretty similar there, but I think my by using this lens of Trinitarian theology, what I was really looking for there wasn't necessarily, you know, is Jesus the most mentioned? Yes, I did find that out. He still is the most mentioned. <laughs> but what I was really looking at was, is there this balance in the songs of God is one and God is three? And in doing so, what I found was a lot of these songs reference God very generically. God is just God. Um, God is Lord, but Lord not connected to Jesus, just used as Lord. Great are you, Lord, is a great example Mm -hmm. of where it's just Lord, God. And so the amount of times those happen, and you can make your judgments about whether this is good or bad, balances out with the number of times that God is named. Mm. It is very balanced between generic references to God and then very specific references to the persons of the Trinity. So kind of balancing out God is one and God is three. Mm. Um, In a similar way, on the other side, looking at act and being, a lot of it was fairly balanced. Um, As I mentioned before, the categories that I used for that were salvation and creation. Mm -hmm. And um, salvation's mentioned a lot, so mentioned at least in half of the songs. So kind of balances out with with God's being um, and his... uh, character that's mentioned um often as well so they as a corpus of 70 songs were fairly balanced though each individual song it doesn't mean that every song was balanced if that makes sense no i think that's so helpful like using trinitarian theology as a lens versus just yeah like a a trinity hunter a trinity detective because again Uh i which which is helpful there's nothing inherently wrong with that but you would end up throwing out all the psalms or have to do it Mm. or have to do what monastic communities do is tag on a gloria glory to the father to the son you know right (laughs) in in every prayer service to to bring Mm -hmm. that trinitarian it's yeah and kind of drawing a lot of these these thoughts around this decade of of contemporary worship song that you've been studying what what's concerned you about what you've learned? And that could be, again, either as a researcher, which may not be always what you would do with that hat on, but mm. particularly as you you think about all these these concepts and thoughts that you're, you've brought together when it comes down to being a worship leader, a worship educator, what's, yeah, what's maybe concerning about what's been happening in the last decade? I think one of the big things that comes to mind, just because of its dominance, is the influence of capital CMG um, just with how much stake they have in the game of the biggest songs, which may just show, you know, that they're really good at what they do. Um, But with that comes a lot of influence and a lot of responsibility that I don't know them well enough to know if they take that as seriously as they do. Um, But there's a lot that is put on them in particular. Um, So that's, that's a bit concerning in, in that regard. I think the other thing a lot of the data that I collected isn't necessarily in and of itself concerning. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the reason why I don't see it as concerning or I'll, or I'll say it this way, the context that I don't find this concerning for is the one where a worship leader or pastor takes their role very seriously and acknowledges the weight 
of what they do and doesn't just plan all their songs from the CCLI top 100. Yeah. The settings that do that and just for time reasons or gosh, I hope it's not laziness. If this is what God has called you to <laughs> um, just pick, you know, their three, four song set just by going to CCLI and going, yeah, these songs kind of flow together yeah. well and we know them already. So let's just use these. Yeah. Well, then it starts to get a little concerning because as I mentioned, things are balanced. But if you're going to pick all the ones on the one side without realizing it, because again, those people aren't necessarily taking their role as seriously as some of the others. Yeah. Um, those congregations aren't getting a good breadth of, of a picture of who God is yeah. um, and are, are missing out on some of those things that I've mentioned are, are kind of missing from the text and um, mm. just aren't getting that depth. I hear, yeah, in that the the encouragement, like to take take our role seriously. And again, mm -hmm. all of us have been there when there's a service. <laughs> I was there yesterday afternoon. Oh, there's a service in two hours, and it was small. It was prayer gathering, so it didn't need, mm -hmm. it did, it, yeah, it didn't need the planning in the sense, but also like, oh, what are we gonna what are we gonna sing? And so to take that yeah. prayer, prayerfully, thoughtfully, mm -hmm. even theologically, pastorally, yeah. take that well, seriously. Well, yeah, I'd even say, though, just for anyone who's listening on here who feels attacked, <laughs> um, <laughs> I will just say, uh, right now, I am not regularly worship planning, worship leading. I'm not doing that weekly. I'm doing that monthly with the young adults at uh, my church. Um, but for Sundays, I'm a volunteer on the worship team. Yeah. I'm playing keys. That's what I'm doing. I have no role in the planning. And our church doesn't plan from a, like a song collection or song list. Um, we have a lot of songs rotating in and out. And so I'll be honest, there are times when I will use the CCLI top 100 just as a baseline for what I hope people will know. Yeah. Because if it's there, enough people have done it that people will know it. Yeah. And so at that point, Okay, yes, I am using the CCLI Top 100 for time's sake and just for, you know, context of what songs are most well-known. Um, but I am still being discerning and looking at the songs and deciding, is this a song I should be doing? Even if I am going to the CCLI Top 100 as a reference, which, again, I do, so if you do that... Know that I'm not, you know, harping on you. I you're promise. there with you're there with the rest um, of us. I, I at do times, that too. Yeah. I, at, at times when it's necessary, but I think yeah. at the end of the day, as you're saying, I think it's so important that even if that's what we need to do for whatever reason, that we are still being intentional and taking our responsibility seriously and picking songs that will, yeah, build up the congregation and um, be fruitful for worship. Yeah, I think one of the times I use it most is if I'm leading in a a new setting that has a lot of different denominations or like mm -hmm. it's very ecumenical. I'm like, yep. okay, what's a song probably everyone <laughs> knows, but also it's yes. not amazing grace or what I friend we have in Jesus or how great is our uh -huh. God? Like the ones I know everyone knows, but um, right. what's something, yeah, in the last 20 years that everyone would know. Well, speaking of songs, that we would use from CCLI. If are you up for a game? I've only done this one other time with a mutual friend of ours, Adam Perez. But would you be up for playing three or four rounds of which CCLI song would you use? 
Okay. Are you up for I that? I like this. And I so, think this is fun. And then <laughs> I'm going to try to make this podcast fun because um, it hasn't been the last 20 episodes, but now oh, we're, no. we're going to hit the fun peak. <laughs> Here so it is, game time. I, I'm going to give you two songs and then you choose one and just in a sentence say why. So it, this isn't a... You know, a paper you're going to present at the next Society of Christian Music Scholarship, <laughs> or okay. so. But in a sense, and that could, yeah, may have musical or pastoral or theological or just personal sure. reasons. It's oversung in yours. You have a lot of flexibility. So, which of these yeah. two would you use? Reckless love or how he loves us with the sloppy wet kiss? Um, yes. Lyrics. Um, which one? Reckless love or how he loves us, Shannon? How he loves us, no contest. Even with sloppy with, wet. With sloppy wet right. kiss. I am a sloppy wet and kiss wh- person. And why? And why? <laughs> uh, Not why just, are you a sloppy wet kiss yeah, no. person, but why? <laughs> but no, why? Uh, that, that song was really formational for mm. me early on in my faith. Um, yeah. And it has remained uh, kind of a cornerstone for yeah, that early formation years. Yeah, if anyone ever listens back to to John Mark McMillan's kind of testimony around that song and how mm-hmm. it went out, it's yeah, it's one of those interesting stories that can really encourage you. All right, so will I, or no longer slaves. Ooh, so will I, mainly because I've got one big problem with no longer slaves, um, which this is a theology podcast. I can bring it up here. Uh, I personally recently discovered some issues with verse two of no longer slaves. Um, I just think there's the line where it says your blood flows through my veins, which in my mind undermines the doctrine of adoption, which Mm. is now the reason why I no longer use Mm. no longer slaves. It's very specific. Mm. Jonathan Helser, if you're out there, come on the podcast and let's see what you really (laughs) meant by that, by that one. (laughs) Oh, okay. That's, that's no, that's helpful. So will I is great. Yeah. Such a beautiful, I mean, yeah, I've, I've used no longer slaves at adult baptism, um, which was mm. very, very moving. Um, that was one of the most moving times I've, I've yeah seen that song for me. Mm. Okay. Number three, Hosanna, the Hill song or Hosanna, mm. the Paul Balash. Do you know both of those? I do. Hosanna Hill song. And why? Big, big Brooke Lidgertwood fan. Okay. <laughs> It's just your your celebrity your celebrity like fan <laughs> fandom is the rationale for that. I love it. All right, uh, last last one. Uh, are you going to raise a hallelujah, or are you going to fight your battles? Ooh, between those two, <laughs> I'm fighting battles. All right. Would you do just the vamp or the full song? That like, have you ever heard the full song? It like it draws yeah, on Psalm 23. Yeah, yeah, it's got it's got some good language in there. I'd, I'd probably do the full song just right. to give it a little more weight. Give it a yeah. little more to see mm-hmm. what those battles you're fighting yeah. are and what, <laughs> who's fighting them for you. Yes, you've yeah. One of the one of the other things that you've you've been writing and thinking about is kind of the growth of ad libbing in contemporary worship, and particularly as it's recorded, not just in the services, but also as it's coming out on recordings, YouTube. Could you, yeah, just share. I mean, some of us are very familiar, have done that all the time and have had live recordings that do that, but also some traditions, some listeners, this is unique, strange. Could you just share why you think it's the practice has maybe grown if, if you think it has? And then also what's the purpose of it on albums and why it's, why it's being used? Yeah, I think ad-libbing, it's existed for a while. 
it's not necessarily new, but I think it's increased in use because of the prominence of all of these big worship artists putting out live live albums. They're recording songs in a live setting. And so instead of just being in a studio uh, where you're kind of on your own, singing your part, getting it done, when you're in a live worship context, what I've seen happening is that vocalists, as a means to maybe... This is my my theory. Yeah. Uh, in the same way that worship leaders will close their eyes and raise their hands, vocalists, in a way, kind of authentic, you know, present themselves as an authentic worshiper by ad libbing, and so they'll ad lib. So just kind of singing um, various different things uh, at moments when it's instrumental. So instead of a guitar solo, like a lot of Hillsong songs have guitar solos from like the two thousands. Um, but we've seen those almost replaced with these extended instrumentals with lots of ad-libbing, just spontaneous singing. And so I think a lot of it's just, yeah, these live recordings are capturing those moments. And so people are listening to those and worship leaders are sending out YouTube videos that include those ad-libs. So occasionally I've seen this happen too, which I haven't fully processed what that means, but worship leaders at the local level, vocalists will replicate what they heard someone else spontaneously ad lib. And so trying to reconcile that of, well, are those ad libs then a part of the song or are those meant to be, you know, don't replicate the, the notes, but maybe replicate the practice and just do your own ad libs. Uh, it's been an interesting, uh, yes paradox there of what do we do that's the the one that you mentioned last is what i've observed i've always seen you know i went to a reformed christian school and then uh, assemblies of god pentecostal church and so i was seeing even as a young kid these different approaches in in worship mm. and the the ad libbing was normal and extended times of spontaneous singing and that was very normal mm-hmm. in 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 the 80s 90s and some of the circles i was in but what I've seen more recently is what you just said. Like if Kim Walker Smith on a Jesus culture ad libs something that I go see it at another church, you see that same, or even Jonathan mm-hmm. Helser, as we said, on yeah. like something that's ad lib that then it's it's brought in. Is it that yeah, they people think it's part of the song? Is it this desire for authentic like authenticity to be connected? Um I, I'm I'm not entirely hmm. sure. I think the people who replicate the practice. I think those people who sing their own ad libs, I think they're definitely falling into the like authenticating Mm -hmm. track. Those who are singing what they've heard it for me, it almost makes me start to wonder, and I've been pondering this for a little while, but what makes what we do different than worship karaoke? Mm -hmm. It's something I've been pondering a little bit of what, what are we doing that makes it different? And I think what complicates that is when vocalists do sing songs exactly as they heard them on the track, every ad lib, every, you know, cue, um, every aspect of that song is, is replicated. And so I think for me, that's where it kind of becomes challenging to the practice itself of, you know, what, what are we doing? And I, I will say if any, again, if anyone out there is listening and does that, <laughs> no, I have done that too. <laughs> um, again, not alone. Um, but I, I would say it's, it's an interesting thing to think about because I do the same thing. The, the only other time when I do that, when I sing exactly like the recording is when I'm singing along to a secular song in my car. Mm. 
or even if I'm just singing along to any recording. So I, um, there's a couple of songs by, um, Israel Houghton, mm-hmm. where I'll sing every single brass line. Yes. Yes. Every we single were. one of those. Uh-huh. Every single one of those. Um, or like on like his risen track from the, I think it's the live in Asia album, every single one of those ad libs and cues I will sing. And so I'll do that in my car. But I wonder if it's just kind of out of habit where you've been singing that song along on your you know, Spotify playlist that when you go to lead it, you do it the same way that you've always sung it, right? You, you do it the same way you sing it in your car. And so I wonder if there's maybe a shift that needs to be made in leadership about encouraging people to adopt their own ad libs instead of using the same ones that they hear on the recording and maybe giving some reason why. Yeah. Uh, no, I love that. I, I'm, I'm also, I've done some jazz education too. And so as you were just sharing that, I didn't think about this before, but like part of when you do teach people to improvise in, in jazz education is that you do like learn everyone else's licks. Like you learn mm-hmm. everyone else's, you learn the Miles Davis lick on so what, even on other instruments and, <laughs> and you play that and yeah. you learn, yeah, Coltrane stuff. And so I'm also curious, yeah, maybe as some churches are starting to adopt more of these contemporary songs that are coming from traditions that have, you know, African-American spirituals and others have Mm -hmm. been highly improvised for, you know, hundreds of years. And same with some Pentecostal movements. I wonder if some of that is is mimicking as they're learning, which is, again, part of the education of how you learn to improvise is by Mm -hmm. learning from the masters. But yeah, what point do you make that your own, or maybe you mm-hmm. don't do that and instead pray something for your community that's connected or just listen to yeah. a great guitar solo too. If someone's playing, playing over right. that too. Yeah. Well, what I kind of wonder with that a little bit thinking about it, when I was starting to research this, no one's talking about it. Even in popular music studies, ad-libbing isn't necessarily a thing that's discussed because in a lot of those like pop music worlds, the ad-libs happen, but a lot of them are done in the studio mm-hmm. or very spontaneously. It's not like an extended amount of time. And it's more to show off your like vocal abilities than it is to do anything else. A lot of those ad-libs will be the yeah. options, you know, the option ups where they yeah, all of a sudden sing a really high note yeah. just because they can. And so it's like at a concert, look what I can do. Yeah. But in a worship setting, it's, it's very different. And yeah. so... What, what I hoped, um, even just for, you know, even beyond the contemporary worship practice, I don't know if any popular music <laughs> studies people will find it. They, um, they probably don't listen to this podcast. But <laughs> probably not, but that's okay. Unless Shout it's the, to... <laughs> the, two or, the two or three that we know. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> um, but even even within, you know, contemporary worship settings, what I, what I hope to do with that, with that research is I created a typology Uh, to just to describe and give names to the things that people do. So if people are trying to figure out how to ad lib, my typology could potentially help people with that. So I've got two types that are based on location, the lead ad lib and the tag ad lib. Mm. The lead ad lib ad lib is where you sing what is about to be sung. Mm -hmm. So you kind of sing, not just say, let's sing that chorus again. You sing, you know, if you're going into the chorus of living hope, you would sing hallelujah and then go into the chorus. Lord, you are good in our earlier example. uh Yes, exactly. Um, So that'd be a lead. And then tag is, you know, when you continue to sing what you just sung. So you just continue 
uh, with that. Um, the other two that I had there were based on function. So it's, you can have a guiding ad lib or personal ad libs. So the guiding ad libs are ones that are typically very clearly on the mic. They're sung and they're sung over the people to guide their thinking and shape their thinking about what's being sung. Mm. So it's not necessarily singing the words of the lyrics, but singing additional words Mm and phrases and ideas that will give shape to the worshipers about what they're singing mm-hmm. on the could, flip side. Could, of, could that be something like, you know, you're singing lyrics and it's like, let's pray this or sing this over our families. Or is that, is that the kind of thing or is it, kinda, it's is um, it still connect? Some, go ahead. No. Yeah. So it, it's kind of like that, but it'd be, um, you know, uh, so let's, this is like a really old example, not a 2010 specific example, but like how great is our God, right? So in, so in kind of an instrumental section, if you were to start singing, he is so worthy, mm-hmm. he has done so much for us, and you're singing that, yeah. that would be kind of a guiding yep. one. Because that yep. song doesn't actually say worthy yep. or, you know, this yep. is what he's done for us. Yep. But like you're singing that yep. to have the people think yeah. about his that worthiness when, they, what he's done. Yeah. when they yeah. sing that again. Yeah. So then on the flip side of that is the is the personal ad lib. So those would be the ones that may or may not be on mic, but are really not intended for people to hear. Mm-hmm. They're really just your own personal expression. So we're guiding ad libs might use a lot of we language. Personal ad libs will never use we language. It will always be I, my, me, very personal, probably not on mic. So those ones happen to mm-hmm. um and then I just had a final category catch all. Uh, they're called they're called vocables. Um, so those are like the O, oh, the whoa, oh, yeah, the yeah. yeah, ah, ooh, like all of those that aren't actually yeah. words. Yeah. Um, just kind of a catch all for for all of those. So just hoping those can be helpful and they can be combined. Those are you like know, the I feel exclusive. like those are the Mariah the Mariah Carey or the or the yeah. or the Christina Aguilera like right yeah. in the first couple uh-huh. bars. <laughs> Like 100%. 100%. Oh, no, that's helpful. Both. Yeah. For those two or three listeners in popular music studies, but then also, (laughs) also, yeah. For those of us who are wanting to like, think more about those ad libs, like maybe we are Mm -hmm. wanting, there's things happening in our heart and in our community that we want to bring expression to, but different Mm -hmm. ways of doing this. Um, yeah, I guess as, as we kind of start to wrap up, like what, what about, um, this, this kind of I wasn't going to ask this, but I'm coming back to it now. One of one of the English profs who are right next to me. I said I was I was talking to someone who's who's doing a lot of work within the the contemporary worship songs, and she was really aware of this repetition of like not just the lyrics, but yes, the lyrics, also these builds with you know like uh, some of my friends call it the IHOP or Bethel build, where the drummer and the band goes from quarter notes. <laughs> to eighth notes, to 16th notes, to even faster, to diamonds, like where you may sing, we're never going to let, you know, he's never going to let me down Mm -hmm. three, four times through that, which means like 20 times. Like, is that, is that something that's, and again, some of these are on recordings. Is that something new novel in this last maybe decade? And yeah, if, if so, why do you think this is being used more and more? Yeah, I, I think it's starting to decrease a little bit. 
you know, the the old trope of the 7-Eleven song, I don't see as much anymore, you know, where you've got seven words, you sing them 11 yeah. times, for those who aren't familiar with that phrase. Um, but people still use that. And I, I, I do just want to dispel that a little bit, that that's not as common as it used to be. Hmm. A lot of these songs are being a little bit more thematically robust yeah. um, and will have more to them. That being said, um, there are still songs that do that. Um, and... I'll be honest, I'm a drummer, so I love <laughs> a good build bridge. Um, you know, when you when you start off real low, just some cymbal stuff, and then add some toms, and then you're, you know, straight, straight building in eighths into sixteenths. But for me, the reason why I think I enjoy those so much and think they're so pivotal and important in especially a contemporary worship setting is the way I've I've thought about it, especially when I'm leading even on drums or wherever is that first time that you sing it when it's really low, that's meditating on the truth. That's taking it in. Okay, this is what this is saying. Okay, this is what I'm, this is what I'm saying. And then each time that that builds, so as it's getting bigger, you're slowly letting that become true for you. It's not just something that exists. You're saying it to the point where I'm not just saying this because it's on the screen. I'm saying this because I believe it. So by the point that by the time that you get to the end of that build and it is as big as it loudly can get, you're no longer meditating, trying to figure out what you if you believe that you're no longer having it become true for you because it has. And now you're just proclaiming it as truth. And I just love the way that 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 builds. And I I think thinking about each of those repetitions as having a meaning and a deepening um, kind of similar in a ways, though, again, can't equate the two necessarily, but. Taze does way more yeah. repetitions than contemporary worship bridges. Um, but it's that same idea of the more that you sing it, the more that it kind of, you know, grows within you and becomes a deeper truth. Mm. Um, and so I, I personally love those bridges. Unfortunately, to some extent, I guess for me, since I love them, unfortunately, <laughs> they're de- decreasing a little bit. Um, a lot of new songs are not necessarily doing it that same way. They are still having bridges. They're just not like the dramatic, we're going to do this four times and each time's going to get a little bigger. It's mm-hmm. like, we're going to do it twice and we'll call it a day and go back into the yeah, chorus. Yeah, yeah, No, you get, that was a little bit of a liturgical theology from Dr. Shannon Baker around, <laughs> around the, the, the use of the middle eight, the bridge. Like, yeah, yeah. from you said from contemplative to mm-hmm. what was the next phase? And then, you, uh, and then you went to proclamate or kind of proclaiming it. Yeah, what, yeah, what was, yeah. What was the middle phase? It was just kind of like, uh, do I like? Uh, yeah, is it because it's becoming true for yeah, you? So yeah. like, it's it's not just becoming a truth; it's becoming the truth that you are agreeing with. So from kind of c- contemplating it to uh, kind of agreeing to it to mm-hmm. proclaiming mm-hmm. it or yeah. espousing it. Oh, I like that. Mm-hmm. It's, that's yeah. good. I'll footnote you if I ever write anything on that. <laughs> Perfect. Um. What what do you think's next for a contemporary worship song? I mean, as you're you know, you took us in your studies a little bit till 2020. It's now 2023. Um, do you have any? I know you're not a scholar in strategic foresight or something like that, <laughs> but but is there anything out there that you think? Oh, I think maybe maybe this is on the horizon for contemporary worship song, particularly in the U.S. Yeah, the thing that comes to mind for me, and I got excited once I had the answer to this question, because <laughs> I, I personally love this type of music. I think what's next, I'm, and I'm going to give a very musical answer. There's yeah. other ways to take it. But 
I think what's next for contemporary worship song is moving towards a larger blend with gospel. Mm. I think at this point, it's almost inevitable. Elevation made the decision to do it in 2017 when they started adding the organ on their There is a Cloud album. And they've kept the organ as a staple. Now they're really bringing in their choir. Elevation Choir has their own Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, but Maverick City is really popular. And they kind of walk that line between gospel, but also accessible to contemporary worship styles. So they kind of walk that line. And I think between those and Elevation has collaborated a lot with Mav City. Mm-hmm. And so I think what's happening there is I think people are going to take notice. I think the industry will also take notice if artists themselves aren't going to make that push. I think the industry is going to advocate for it. Um, They're probably doing it for monetary reasons, but I do love this idea of bringing in these gospel sounds because I personally love them. I love (laughs) gospel music (laughs) so much. Um, William McDowell, Jonathan McReynolds, love them all. Um, So I'm, I'm excited that we're moving in this direction, but what I, what I hope for that is since it, there is starting to be this blend that gospel music can become more accessible to the predominantly non-black church. Mm. And I'm really excited about that because I, I want a lot of those songs to, to be used by the Big C Church because I think there are a lot of gospel songs that are really, really beautiful and great for the church. But they often are so complex yeah. that unless you do learn by ear, which they do in a lot of those settings, they're yeah. really hard. Those chords are so complex, written down in you know notation. It's it's hard to to play. So I'm hoping that this will make it more accessible. I remember there's a large event in the UK called Big Church Day Out. Um, Delirious's old or keyboard player, Tim Jupp, runs it. And they would have like all the artists from the U.S. come. So they'd have gospel artists, Fred Hammond and things, but mm-hmm. then also have all these, you know, Jonathan Helser and all these right. Chris Tomlin and all these other artists. And it was fun when these, because mm. often, at least in the States, they're not in the same festivals where in Europe, sometimes they are because it's, you know, the Christian market's smaller. So you bring everybody to one big event. Uh-huh. And, and also that was Tim's heart is to bring out the whole church um, in that mm. festival. And so I remember all these like young 18 and 20 year old touring drummers when Fred Hammond's drummer was up there with, with their phones, Insta- like live streaming, probably Facebook live, all his drumming because yes. they were backstage, but they'd probably never been in that environment where, where he's mm. drumming. And so I think, yeah, there is some complexity challenges in adapting those songs that, yeah, yep. some churches are going to have to grow musically and learn, yeah. yeah, learn some minor sevenths or some flat nines yeah. and flat fives. More than and, four yeah. chords. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that also allows a different structure that may, some of the lyrics that we're missing right now, or some of the, the, aspects of mm-hmm. worship that we are with some different a different structure both in terms of rhythm sound um and mm. chords may may produce some interesting stuff to come definitely shannon it's been amazing to have you one more what either a challenge or encouragement that you have for budding worship leaders musicians artists again you're you're a scholar and an artist but thinking of those who are who are listening what what do you want to challenge us to or also just encourage us in yeah, I like framing it as as a challenge as, and an encouragement. This is what what I continue to to say to myself, and so I I hope that it that it is um, beneficial to those who listen to this podcast. But um, be intentional with the decisions that you make. 
whether that's picking a scripture, whether that's picking a song, whether that's deciding not to do a song, whether that's deciding what order those songs should go in, I would just encourage and challenge worship leaders to be intentional and make sure that if anybody were to ask you, hey, why do we do that? You have a reason. You can tell them it's not just, yeah, it just kind of fit well. It's no, it fit here well because it's coming right after this song. And so thematically it should go here. And I think, you know, that intentionality, it's, it's something I think can extend to any musicians, vocalists, anybody who's on here that that's listening to this podcast. Um, You can be intentional in the way that you practice. You can be intentional in what you decide to play from a recording and what you decide not to play from a recording. So in, in all that you do, because we have this amazing responsibility and privilege to lead God's people in worship, let's do it with intentionality, being good stewards of the tasks, roles, and gifts that God has given us. Oh, thanks, Shannon. Such a joy to have you. Thanks. This was great. Yeah, my guest today was Dr. Shannon Baker, and yeah, it's been a delight. Thanks for listening to the Worship Theology Podcast. Check out other episodes coming out soon.